I want you to turn to the book of Exodus. That is, again, going to be the focus of our study tonight. But while you're turning to Exodus, I, I want to call your attention to a passage in the New Testament, specifically the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. If you could hold your place in Exodus 1 and turn over to Luke 9.23. I want to read a few verses here to kind of set your heart and your expectations for what we're to discover in the book of Exodus. In fact, I think this passage in the New Testament helps us to understand how the New Testament intends that we would, as believers in Christ under the new covenant, would reflect on the old covenant established through the Exodus event, God's bringing the people of Israel out of their Egyptian bondage. Luke 9, 23 says, And he said to them all, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What is a man benefited if he gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and that of the Father and the holy angels. I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after these words, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his death, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So you have the take up the cross passage that is the essence of discipleship. And the essence of discipleship is a perspective that looks beyond this earthly life to what awaits us in the resurrection. And then the affirmation of that, the otherworldly nature of true discipleship is affirmed in Luke's gospel by this explanation of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, witness beheld in his glory, meeting with Moses and Elijah, in their resurrection glory, conversing about his death. Verse 31 again says, They appeared in glory and were speaking of his death, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now this is one of those places where the English translation does a real disservice to what's being communicated in our passage. Because the terminology used here for death is the Greek word exodus. They were literally speaking of his exodus. So the New Testament, in so many ways, draws parallels between the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which is our deliverance from bondage in sin. The parallels are drawn with the exodus event of the book of Exodus, which was the deliverance of the people of Israel from their Egyptian captivity. When you read the book of Exodus, the New Testament is inviting you to read your experience, your salvation experience, and your journey with Jesus through the lens of the Israelite experience. Sometimes you can catch yourself, someone commented this before we began tonight earlier in the after, to reflect on the reality that I am the foolish Israelite. Again and again and again, we find them forgetting the favor that God has shown them, his faithfulness among them and, and in them and through them. God is at work. God has delivered them. 
And they have this same tendency that we have to remember the old life in far better terms than it was in reality. As soon as things get difficult, they say again and again and again, we should have just stayed in Egypt. It was better for us. They remember it better than it was in reality. And their temptation is to revert back to their former way of life, to their slavish ways when the going gets tough. We are the children of Israel. We are wilderness wanderers longing to cross over the Jordan into a land that flows with milk and honey. And the invitation of the New Testament is that we would persist in our faith in Jesus that one day at long last he might bring us over into the promised land. The three key themes in the book of Exodus as I see it. One is Exodus, deliverance, the deliverance of the people, which you see in chapters 1 through 18. Then there is the theme of covenant. We'll not cover covenant thoroughly tonight. One night is not sufficient to cover covenant thoroughly. It will be sufficient for the night to note that God is establishing a covenant relationship between himself and the people of Israel. One could argue that covenant is one of the most significant themes in all of the Bible. There is a covenant established between God and Adam in the garden. There is a covenant established between God and Abram in Genesis 12 and then reaffirmed in Genesis 15. That same covenant is reaffirmed in the life of Isaac and that of Jacob and to some respect in the experiences of Jacob's 12 sons, who become the tribal heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. There is a covenant established with Moses and the nation of Israel, Moses as the mediator between God and the Israelite people. There is a covenant established between God and David that a king in the lineage of Judah would rule forever on the throne of Israel. And there is a covenant established between every blood-bought believer by Jesus Christ, a new and improved upon covenant. A covenant not conditioned upon our works, but conditioned upon the finished work of Jesus. Covenant is a significant theme throughout the Bible. But this in so many ways, the covenant established through Moses becomes sort of the point of reference for understanding all other covenants in the Scripture. And then the third theme, which we could point to in virtually every chapter in the book of Exodus, is the presence of God. God is with his people. Let's look first at Exodus chapter number 1. Exodus 1 begins this way. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70, Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. And here's the ominous verse. A new king who had not known Joseph came to power in Egypt. The first seven verses invite us to remember from whence we've come in the biblical narrative. The book of Genesis closes with Joseph functioning as something similar to a prime minister over the nation of Egypt. He is second in command. In fact, in many respects, Pharaoh has given his authority over to Joseph. 
Joseph came there by providence, circumstances that were less than ideal, sold into slavery by his brothers, a slave in Potiphar's house, falsely accused of a sexual assault, thrown into prison where he tells the dreams, interprets the dreams of a baker and a cupbearer. They promise to remember him when this unfolds, the telling of their dream, the prophecy of the dream unfolds, but they forget until Pharaoh himself has a dream. Joseph likewise interprets the dream of Pharaoh and works and moves within the framework of Egyptian governance in a way that serves the benefit of the nation. Eventually, given the famine that had struck the land of Egypt and the land to its north and east, the land of Israel, his brothers make their way down to Egypt for a time, not knowing that it was their brother Joseph they once sold into slavery that they were conversing with. Eventually, this is discovered. Joseph reveals his true identity, and the people of Israel, this family, this fledgling group that would ultimately become a nation, relocate from the land they'd settled by their grandfather Abraham into the land of Egypt. And there in Egypt, they flourished. They had the favor of Pharaoh and the people given Joseph's role in delivering the people of Egypt through that great famine. They multiplied greatly. Evidence of God's favor was all over their life and experience until Joseph's generation died. And there arose a king in Egypt who knew not Joseph. This marks the turning of a page. The favor that Israel had once enjoyed within the promised land had now gone away. In fact, the people of Israel come to be regarded as a great threat to the, to the stability of the nation and the Egyptian people themselves. In verse 9, the Bible says, This new king said to the people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Let's deal shrewdly with them, otherwise they'll multiply further. And if war breaks out, they, they'll, they may join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Python and Ramesses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor and brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. Well, not only did they make the experience of the Israelite people dreadful, oppressing them with field work and the making of bricks and the construction of various cities as described in the verses we've just read. They actually turned to the first historical notation of partial birth abortion to further oppress the people in verses 15 and following. The Bible says here, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The Hebrew midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. And what the remainder of chapter 1 tells us is that even with this act of oppression, the people of Israel continued to prosper. And evidence of God's favor was clear in the way they multiplied through the bearing of children. The Bible says in verse 20, God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very numerous. It was into this context that Moses, who is the central figure in the book of Exodus, was born, and in many ways a central figure in all of the Bible. 
I should probably clarify that God is the central figure in the book of Moses, but as so far as man is concerned, Moses is the, the character of chief importance. In chapter 2 and verse 1, the Bible tells us that a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and she gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. Just to sort of move us along in the Exodus narrative, what happens is that the child is discovered. A young girl finds the baby Moses there in the reeds of the Nile River, but she's not just the run-of-the-mill young girl. She happens to be the daughter of Pharaoh. And eventually, she takes Moses as her own son. Only God has situated the circumstances of Moses' young life that not only could he grow in the house of Pharaoh, exposing him to education and cultural insight that would no doubt benefit him later as the leader of the people of Israel, but he would be nursed in his infancy by his very birth mother who would come to attend to his need there in Pharaoh's house. It's almost comical the way things unfold for Moses in his infancy. The way God puts things together is really astounding. It's a testament to the way God works in mysterious ways even in our own lives, but that is most certainly the case in that of Moses. Verse 11 of chapter 2 tells us that when Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. Again, to sort of move forward in our narrative here, what Moses observes is an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew. And Moses takes things into his own hands and kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. He believes to have done this under, without people knowing. Like he's, he thinks he's pulled this off and it's sort of the perfect crime and he'll go on about his business. But the next day he encounters two Hebrews who are bickering among themselves and one asks, you're just going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian. Moses is fearful for his life, and rightly so. When Pharaoh hears of what Moses has done, he is after Moses, but Moses flees, uh, uh, flees rather, to, to, Midi, to the Midianite people. There he meets Zipporah, the son of a man, the daughter rather of a man named Jethro, who you'll meet later in the book of Exodus, and is is wed. Things are pretty well status quo for Moses for this period of his life. He's there in the land of the Midianite people. He has taken Zipporah as a wife. He is participating in agriculture as was customary in that time until Exodus chapter 3. When Moses meets God at a bush that burns but is not consumed. In chapter 3 and verse 1 the Bible says, Meanwhile Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. And God said, don't come closer. Remove the sandals from your feet. 
for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. It's, it's interesting here that Moses is afraid to look at God in Exodus 3, but by the time we come to Exodus chapter 32, Moses is actually petitioning the Lord that he might behold his glory. He is hidden in the cleft of the rock, and God allows that what the Bible describes as his backward parts, something of his glory veiled could be observed by Moses. Here, he's just afraid to look, and so he hides his face. In verse 7, the Bible says, I've observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because of their oppressors, and I know about their sufferings. I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I've also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now there's comfort in what's unfolded in these verses. Not only in that God is raising up Moses to lead the people out, but that God is keenly aware of the suffering of his people. There's been more than 400 years of slavery experienced by the people of Israel, at least 400 years of displacement, 400 years they've lived in the land of Egypt. Perhaps only in the latter part of that 400 years have things been as severe as they were when Moses enters the scene. But in that window of time, God has not neglected to observe the needs of his people, nor does he uh, uh, neglect to observe the needs of us as we may come under oppression and difficulty in our life here. God remembers them in verses 1 through 10. But Moses asked in verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be a sign that I've sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites, I am has sent you to me. What you have in that self-identification of God is the inflected form of the word we pronounce usually as Yahweh. The truth is, there's some confusion as to what the proper pronunciation of that word is. It is the word in the Hebrew that is held in the highest of regard. Even in our English translations, when this identification of God is used, there's special effort in the translation of the term to communicate that this is the highest of names for the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Often, and until this point, God has made reference to or even referred to within chapter 3 as Elohim, which is sort of a generic way of making reference to God. It's something of the equivalent of G-O-D, the word God in the English language. But God refers to himself here more specifically, I am who I am. Yahweh stated twice in that simple statement, which is just a B verb in the Hebrew. I am who I 
am, the being from whom all of life emanates, the one who enjoys by his very existence all power in heaven and on earth. I am who I am. There's a little play with this terminology all over the Bible. For instance, when Jesus, specifically in the Gospel of John, says, I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. The response of the Pharisees, the opponents of Jesus, when they hear him make any of those statements, is always fury. Before Abraham was, I am. And in that moment, the Pharisees sought to kill him. They were indignant. It was not that Jesus claimed to be living water, bread of life, resurrection and life, the way, the truth, and the life. It was that in their ears, they understood the full significance of that simple statement, I am. The force of each of those seven I am statements in the Gospel of John is not on the metaphor that Jesus uses to describe himself as bread, as water, as light, as resurrection, as life, as way, as truth. The force of each of those I am statements is on the front end of the statement itself. I am, Jesus says. Throughout the Old Testament, you have this use of capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D to have reference to the name Yahweh, the name that God assigns to himself. It's that name that is in view in Philippians chapter 2. When the Bible says that Jesus, though he considered it not robbery to be counted equal with God, would divest himself of the glories of heaven, would clothe himself in flesh, would walk among us as sinful man, would subject himself to earthly powers, even unto death on the cross, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth. He is given the name that is above every name. The name above every name is not the name of Jesus. The name above every name is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I am who I am. The highest name that God gives himself, God's self-identification, is assigned to Jesus in his death and resurrection. All authority, Jesus says, is given to me in heaven and on earth. This designation... Described in Exodus chapter 3 is the critical name for God in all of the Bible, one of the most significant events in redemptive history. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. And this is what you're to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Say this to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I'm to be remembered in every generation. Well, the discourse goes back and forth. God makes clear his plan for Moses' life. But as is often the case when God calls, there's a little reluctance on the part of Moses. And he wonders how in the world it is that God could ever use him 
to bring about this great feat? How in the world could God use Moses to deliver this fledgling people from the grip of the most powerful empire, or even the connections he's established in the house of Pharaoh, but by his great power? Moses seems especially reluctant at his slowness of speech. There's all kinds of conjecture as to what Moses means by being slow of speech. Did he speak in a strange tone or in a strange way? Did he have a speech impediment or a stutter? That's typically the way those words are understood here. In any event, God accounts for Moses' perceived shortcomings in allowing that Aaron, his brother, would be something of his spokesperson. So powerfully so that God describes the Moses and Aaron relationship as God and prophet. Moses would instruct Aaron to speak as he intended him to speak. Obviously, God would first instruct Moses. And then Moses as, or Aaron rather, as Moses' prophet would declare for the people what he would have them to do. They're given a series of signs or miracles that they're empowered to perform before the court of Pharaoh. Those signs or miracles, specifically a staff that would turn into a snake and return to the form of a staff, water that would turn to blood when poured out, the ability to put one's hand into their cloak and withdraw it leprous, put it back in and to be healed from the leprosy. These signs or miracles are given to Moses and Aaron so that they're to perform them before Pharaoh in an effort to convince him of the necessity of letting the people of Israel go. Each time, their miracle working power, miracles wrought by the supernatural power of God, is matched in Pharaoh's court by the powers of darkness under which his magicians are influenced. Eventually, God begins to work through plagues. There are ten plagues that unfold within the nation of Egypt in an effort at convincing them of the reasonableness and even the necessity of freeing the people of Israel that they might worship God as one people. Moses and Aaron are back and forth before Pharaoh, and eventually, at the hardness of his heart, God brings the first plague in chapter 7. In the first plague, the water of the Nile is turned to blood. In the second plague, there are frogs everywhere. Every little boy's dream, right? But frogs in this number are quite problematic. In fact, as they begin to die, there's a stench that covers the land. Frogs are problematic in more ways than one. There are frogs everywhere. Frogs in your bed and frogs in your sandals and frogs in your house. There are frogs everywhere, and it just gets worse. In the third plague, God sends gnats, which in my mind is worse than frogs. In the fourth plague, things get more personal and the people break out with boils all over. In the seventh plague, hail falls from the sky, destroying the crops and many of their homes. In the eighth plague, the locusts come. Locusts don't mean much to us. We get them every seven years, I think, is the cycle here. But when they come in swarms, they can destroy a crop. They can destroy the land in a relatively short period of time. And indeed, that is the case for the people of Egypt. In the ninth plague, darkness covers the land, and by now you might assume that Pharaoh would be convinced that indeed the true God, the living God, was behind the work of Moses and Aaron. But he persists in his hard-heartedness. God brings the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn. 
And so the firstborn of every Egyptian family was to die, and in fact they did. The firstborn of all their livestock and the firstborn of the mother's womb. There is great darkness over the land now, not literally, but emotionally. The people are low at the loss of so many people. If you can imagine what that might have looked like, a child from every home, someone in every family was now absent by virtue of death. God had, of course, made a way that the people of Israel would be protected as the death angel passed over and the firstborn of every family was taken. They were to slaughter a lamb, a lamb that would be identified as the Passover lamb, a young lamb, a lamb without spot or blemish. They were to slaughter that lamb as a family, and they were to take the blood of that lamb and paint it on the doorpost, the lintel of their home. And when the death angel would pass over, seeing the blood on the doorpost of that home would be an indication that he was to pass over in his wrath a given home. The people of Israel were instructed in chapter 12 that they were to institute the Passover celebration in order to remember the night that God caused the death angel to pass over their homes. They took their shelter behind the blood of the Lamb. And that becomes a paradigm for which we understand, through which we understand the shed blood of Jesus for our sins. Some time ago I was listening to a scholar speak on the similarities between the experiences of the Egyptian people and or the Israelite people in in Egypt and and our own and and they they're they're many we 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 were a, a people the Israelites might have said in Moses's day without a homeland we were slaves in a place that was altogether foreign to us without hope and and greatly oppressed And God moved through a mediator. And when his wrath came, we took shelter behind the blood of the Lamb. We have been set free. We're on a journey toward the promised land during which God is providing for our every need. We haven't arrived yet, but we hope to, by faith, we're believing that God will one day bring us over the Jordan to a land that flows with milk and honey. By grace, he's given us his law. He's instructed us how we're to live before him in this season of in-between, having been liberated from our bondage and what awaits us in this land of milk and honey. We're looking forward to crossing over with great hope and expectation. But until that day comes, we're observing his command for us. We're hopeful and enthusiastic about what the future holds for us as the people of God on our journey to the promised land. I mean, when you think about the people of Israel and their experience in those terms, it is our own experience. It's it's a a 1,500-year early illustration of the message of the gospel and what Jesus would do for us through his death and resurrection. Not only are the people instructed in chapter 12 that they're to institute the Passover celebration as a reminder of the death angel passing over their homes, they're also to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper with bread that you might not regard as being incredibly tasty, it's, it's 
a reflection of God's instruction to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 12. They were to eat unleavened bread. They were to eat it with haste as a reminder of the speed with which the urgency of their departure from the land of, of Egypt. The actual Exodus itself takes place in chapters 13 and 14. Look over to chapter 13 and verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God didn't lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. For God said the people would change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. So he led the people around toward the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness. And the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. I'm not sure this is Moses' intent in recording what he requested. interest. Like the way to go was the way of the Philistines. But God knows they couldn't bear with the difficulties that come with that path. It's the short way. Rather, he leads them out to the Red Sea for one of the greatest demonstrations in human history of his power and the provision he intends for the people of Israel. Verse 20 says, They set out from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. Remember we mentioned a moment ago, and the chances are, given the time, we won't get to this theme in the book of Exodus, but the third and final theme that we mentioned was the presence of God with them. In a pillar of fire by night, and by a great cloud in the day, God would signal in the heavens His presence with His people. Seldom does God sit, give such clear signs of his presence with us. But I would remind you that no longer under the covenant of, of Moses, but under the new covenant written in the blood of our Savior Jesus, he has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Every step along the way, God is with his people. Chapter 14, the Bible says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pi-Haharoth between Migdal and the sea. You must camp in front of Baal-Zephon facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, They're wandering around the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he'll pursue them. And I'll receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people and said, what have we done? We've released Israel from serving us. So he got his chariot ready and took his troops with him. He took 600 of the best chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt with officers in each one. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out triumphantly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army, chased after them and caught up with them as they camped by the sea at Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and saw the Egyptians coming after them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, it's because there are no graves in Egypt that you took us to die in the wilderness. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. See, this is what we do. This is what they did, and this is what we do. 
But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm. See the Lord's salvation. He'll provide for you today. So the Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You must be quiet. Now, chances are you know at least something of what unfolds in the remainder of this chapter. The people of Israel go out to the Red Sea. As, as soon as the first Israelite foot steps into the sea, the water parts and the people pass through. And even as they're passing through, they could hear the chants and the taunts of the Egyptian army bearing down on them. Remember, we're talking about a largely unarmed Israelite people, people with women and children in their tow, a multitude of people, yes, but a multitude of people with scarcely any defense and certainly no means of creating an offensive against the mighty Egyptian army and their chariots and officers. And here they come, bearing down on them. In Colossians chapter 1, as Paul begins to describe in this lengthy Christological passage, the beauty of what Jesus has done for us, there's certain terminology there that alludes to or echoes the language of the Exodus event. Paul says there, we were in the kingdom of darkness, but have been conveyed or transferred, as some translations say, into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Now the specific terminology that Paul uses alludes clearly to the Exodus event. It's a reminder to us of how we were once members of the kingdom of darkness and how God has now plucked us out and given us citizenship in the kingdom of Jesus. But you should be careful to note that living on the other side of the kingdom boundary line doesn't mean there won't be seasons when the children of darkness, perhaps even the prince of darkness, makes its way to the outer bounds of his territory and chants and taunts insults and accusation across the boundary line. But you should at the same time be reminded that he has no authority in the kingdom to which we now belong. He is functionally powerless against the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And he has been rendered such by the crucifixion and the resurrection of the king of all kings and the Lord over this new territory. That is, in some way, what is unfolding in our passage. The people of Israel must have been, been afraid. Can you imagine walking between that wall of water? The, the Bible speaks of these walls of water to the left and right of the people of Israel. Like We have this Sunday school picture in our mind of these confident Israelites marching through on, on dry ground. But I would imagine that there were some who were quite reluctant to step between those walls of water. Don't you imagine that some entered through with great dread and fear at what might happen in the next moments? Not only are we afraid of these Egyptians, they're going to kill us any minute, but we're, we're supposed to walk through this wall of, of water, and God delivers them through. In fear and trepidation, God delivers them through and secures by His great power their liberty forever. When Luke says that Elijah and Moses and Jesus 
were discussing his exodus. This is precisely the thing the Gospel of Luke has in view. That in the same way the exodus event of the Old Testament secured the liberty of the people of Israel, the exodus event of our Savior Jesus has secured our liberty. We may at times take our shelter behind the blood of the Lamb in fear and trepidation. There may be seasons when we walk through the walls of water this life affords us with a great deal of dread, with fear in our heart. But we have no less in those moments been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, from the land of the Egyptians, into a land that flows with milk and honey under the direct lordship of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now in the next major section of the book of Exodus, which begins in chapter number 18, the law of God is given to the people. This theme of covenant, God establishing this relationship between himself and the people of Israel, comes with certain stipulations. God has expectations as to how the people of Israel are to conduct themselves as a nation. In many ways, the covenant of Moses is a, a national covenant. It is a corporate covenant, a covenant God is making with the people in general. It's issued in Exodus 18 through 40. It's rehearsed again in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses preaches four sermons in the book of Deuteronomy, rehearsing for the next generation of Israelite people the stipulations of the covenant, what God expects of them, and what they are to expect of God. God desires that they would be holy even as he is holy, and he prescribes for them a certain manner of life. Obviously, the moral requirements of the law, the ceremonial requirements of the law, the legal requirements of the law have been fulfilled in perfection in Jesus. But the law principle stands, even under the new covenant, that God desires that we would live lives of holiness distinct from the world around us because he has made us his own people. Usually, Christians, and, and this is a, a fairly shared experience, this is not a knock, this is just an observation, and it's a shared experience by many, many Christians, believe somehow that the law is how the people of Israel were made right with God. That's the misconception of the Pharisees in the New Testament that Jesus is always militating against, but that is not the teaching of the law as it's given by God in the Old Testament. You and I are saved the same way today people were saved in the days of Moses, by faith. In fact, Abraham, before Moses, was saved by faith. He believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. God doesn't give the law so the people can be made right with him. God gives the law because he's entered into relationship with them. Now their lives have been reoriented around this relationship, the fellowship they enjoy with God. The law is evidence of God's grace in the life of the people of Israel, not the absence of grace. Typically, we can think in those terms. The Old Testament is about law. And in the Old Testament, if you want to be right with God, you do certain things. But that was never the case. That was only the misrepresentation, the misunderstanding of the law. 
The giving of the law itself is an act of great grace. When God gives us in his word instruction for life, (laughs) the primary focus is not legal requirement so that you can merit favor with God. With respect to Sunday morning's message, when God gives stipulations with regards to marriage and sexual morality, It's not do these things so you can be right with God. It's do these things because you are right with God by the blood of Jesus. When God gives the law through Moses, it's not do these things as a nation so that you can be right with God. It's do these things as a nation because God has entered into covenant with you. These laws are reflective of the grace that God has already and will continue to show in the days ahead. The law is evidence of God's grace toward the people of Israel, but at the same time, it bears certain stipulations. The warning is given again and again and again that to disobey God comes with certain uh, uh, consequences. There are circumstances that arise from disobedience that will have dreadful results for you. The climax, some would say, of the book of Exodus comes in its last chapter. We're back to this theme of God's presence with the people. A part of the giving of the law is not only these sort of strange at times stipulations for the people, but also the construction of the temple or tabernacle system and the sacrificial system whereby the people will worship the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. If anything is clearly stipulated in the giving of the law of Moses, it is that God will be worshipped on his terms according to his conditions, or he will not be worshipped at all. Nearing the end of the book of Exodus, the tabernacle itself is constructed where the sacrificial system will be implemented. And the Bible says in Exodus 40 and verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God was with his people, and God is with his people now. No longer with his people in this historical unfolding of events that afforded for the physical liberty of Israel, but with his people having taken their shelter behind the blood of his only begotten son, Jesus. It's through his Exodus, we have been made free, and lo, he is with us always, even to the end of the age. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, and its encouragement to us tonight. God, forgive us when we follow in the footsteps of fool-hearted Israelites who remember their slavish ways, their former manner of life. in in terms that are just unrealistic and ungodly. There are times, Lord, when the duress or temptation comes that we're inclined to revert back to our former way of life, to give ourselves over to behaving like Egyptians rather than living in light of our exodus. God, forgive us of that. Empower us by your presence through your Holy Spirit Remind us, Lord, that though we may hear the chants and taunts of the Prince of Darkness from across the kingdom boundary line, that we live under the direct lordship of our Savior. Thank you, Lord, that there awaits us a land that flows with milk and honey just on the other side. 
We long for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.